0: So I got an email this week. It said, um, Things you will never hear Dad say. Maybe you've seen that email. I got a kick out of it. One of them, particularly relevant to me, was this. Again, things you will never hear Dad say. Honey, I think I'm lost. I need to stop and ask for directions. <laughs> well, <laughs> so, happy Father's Day, fathers. You know, uh, anytime I move somewhere new... And I'm not familiar with what's around. I like to go out and walk and kind of get my bearings. And in Chicago, that was a little interesting because Moody Bible Institute is right next to Cabrini Green. And I would go walking at night. And Cabrini Green is the projects. And it was scary to me. Once you once you learn how to get around there, it's it's not that bad. But at first, I walked into this place and I thought, where am I? So I I, I tend to get myself in trouble by walking around and trying to figure out where I am. Another situation happened when we first moved to Krasnodar in 2007. It was about 110 every day when we first got there, high humidity, and uh, I would go walking. Of course, we're still jet lagging. We had been there all of two days probably, and everybody else was sleeping in the afternoon, but I took Gabriel. He was in a stroller, and I took Sophia. She was yay high, and and uh, um, we went walking to figure out where we are, to learn learn the city, right? Well, I got lost. Again, it's 110 outside, super high humidity, right in the middle of the afternoon, and I've got my two little ones, and I'm pushing a stroller, and Sophie's walking along helping me push the stroller. And we were gone for two, maybe three hours in that kind of heat just to figure out where I was. So it's uh, maybe it's not always the wisest course of action, but I'm a little bit like Edmund. I like to have a map in my head, and so I have to do that by walking. Um, maps are very interesting things. And, uh, you know, if, if you move to a new place, you don't have to go walking around like I did uh, you can get a map and look at it, but in russia they don 't really use maps; they kind of give directions sort of the old fashioned way, go down to where that you know tree used to be and turn right over by the johnson 's old place you know and that 's the kind of way they give directions, even in the city and so uh, But you can buy a map if you buy a city map, you can find your way around but it 's helpful even if you have a city map and you learn the city well if you 're going to travel somewhere else, you kind of need a, a map of a different scale so that you can see where that city is in relation to other cities right. When I first moved to Chicago, I was always turned around because the water is on the wrong side. Now, I know we don't have water here, but I, I always have in my mind that the Pacific is to the west. And so I arrange that's in my head. I see it all the time and I can always tell where I think the Pacific is. Well, I got to Chicago and the water's on the east and I was always mixed up. So I needed a map. I needed to be able to see uh, a, a large area at one time and then I needed to focus in and be able to see small areas to figure out how to get to the Walgreens, right? So... The uh, Sunday school class that is uh, going on over here in the fellowship hall is an excellent roadmap. It's an excellent map with a large scale, okay, so that you can see the flow of the Bible from beginning to end. It's not going to zoom in and look at one passage and dig it apart, okay? It's going to give you the layout of the whole area. And so that that, uh, Sunday school class that's going on over there is an excellent uh, opportunity for that. And... When we come to our study here in Colossians, our style here at Parkside is we, we kind of work our way relatively slowly through books. Okay, So we study them, we kind of inch our way along, usually a paragraph or half a paragraph at a time. And that is of extremely great value. We want to see what's there. We want to dig in and see what God's Word says. But there's, there's a little bit of a danger that if you spend all of your time looking at a close part and not backing off and seeing, okay, now where am I in relation to... The Pacific Ocean and, and Reno and all that stuff. If you don't back off and look at it, sometimes you kind of miss what's going on. You kind of miss the forest for the trees. So what I'm going to do today is going to be a little bit different, okay? I'm going to, to back off. My passage today is verses 5 through 11 of chapter 3. But I'm going to back off and start over again from the beginning and go through just so we can have the layout, So we can have the, the layout of the entire book and know where we're coming from and therefore where we're going. Okay, It's also important for us because we're starting to enter what I call the imperatives section of the book. Imperative is a word that means command. So it's the command section of the book. To this point, for the most part thus far, Paul has been talking about the indicatives, the things that are true. He's been telling us this is true of you, this is true of Christ, this is true of the church. He's been laying out the things that are true. And then now in chapter three, he's going to start saying, okay, because of these things, because these things are true, we have these imperatives. So you need to do this and do this. So we have the commands that come in light of the, impar- the uh, indicative truth of the first couple of chapters. Okay, so there's a tendency or there's a, a danger maybe when we come to the imperative sections, particularly for list makers. We have some list makers in the audience. I know that personally. I personally am not a list maker. All right. But I know some who are closely related. So. But when you come to an imperative section, some people are like, oh, this I get right. Do this. Don't do this. Right. Do this. Don't do this. They make a list. This is how I please God. That's the That's the step that gets taken if if we lose focus, okay? We like to make lists. We like to be told what to do. We like to have it clearly laid out. Do this, don't do that. Okay, I can understand that, right? All right, so those things are important, or else they wouldn't be in Scripture. But we need to have it set in the proper context. We need to be reminded of the truths that came before that make sense of these imperatives, all right? So that's what we're going to do today. And in order to do that... um, And to do it well, I think we need to start with prayer and ask for God's help in this. So let's pray. Lord, we uh, thank you that you give us your word. What a blessing it is that uh, you communicated directly with us to tell us uh, what you want us to know. Lord, we uh, want to be good stewards of your word. We want to sit under your word and submit to it. We want to understand it, and I pray, Lord, that you'd help us this morning to do that. And, Lord, not just understand it, but we want to be motivated by the truth of Scripture that our life would be lived in light of what you have told us. So, Lord, I pray that you would do all those things this morning. I pray that you would help us to forget about what came before this morning and uh, forget about what we do, uh, what we're going to do this afternoon or later or uh, responsibilities of things coming up. Lord, help us to be right here and right now with your word in front of us. I pray that you would uh, speak to us, that you would open our hearts, that we would receive what you have for us. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so you have your outline in front of you from the bulletin. Now you'll notice a plethora of blanks, okay? So I hope your insurance is paid up and your carpal tunnel is doing fine, okay? Because there are going to be a lot of things to fill in, okay? So we're going to go back over and review, and we're going to start in chapter 1 of Colossians. And so what I want to look at first is the preeminence. Of Christ, the preeminence of Christ now that's there's a lot there okay there is a lot there and I can't I can't dig in and cover it all again we're kind of doing an overview we're looking at the large map so that's what I'm doing right now. so preeminence of Christ first of all he's preeminent in creation in creation verses 15 through seventeen say this: he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. So again, there's a lot there and I can't dig into it, but he is preeminent in creation. He comes first. He's the He's the ultimate authority. He's the one who accomplished it, okay? He is preeminent. He's, he's the first when it comes to creation. He's also preeminent in the church. Verses 18 through 22. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So again, I can't dig into that, but he is preeminent in the church. He's the first, all right? It's about him. He's the one with the authority. He's the one that accomplished it. He's preeminent in the church. And point number two, we have been made alive in Christ. We've been made alive in Christ. Letter A there, we have been filled, filled. Chapter two and verse 10 says, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Now, what's interesting about that word filled is that he doesn't say filled with what? Or he doesn't say filled by what? All right? He doesn't say what the content is. Uh, it's not filled with the Holy Spirit. He doesn't go on to spell that. Okay? It doesn't say filled with joy. He doesn't say that. He says you are filled. All right? Now, that that's very interesting. It's a, it's a similar word. Actually, it's the same word in a similar kind of context that he says... In Philippians chapter 4, and we looked at Philippians for quite a while in our Sunday school class. Philippians chapter 4, he's, he's talking to the Philippians and he says, uh, he says, I thank you that you joined in. Um, let me read it here. He says, it was kind of you to share in my trouble. And the implication is there by sending money to me like you did. Because you heard that I was in need. It was kind of you to share in my trouble in that way. And he goes on in verse 18 and he says, I am well supplied. Literally, I am filled. It's the same word. I am filled. Okay. So, what's the idea there? When he says I'm filled, he got he got what he needed from them. He needed some money. He got that from them, and he says I'm filled. What he means is I have everything supplied. I have everything I need. I'm not lacking anything because of what you guys did. I've been taken care of. Okay. I've been filled. And, and it's the same word that he says here. He says, you have been filled in him. So what that means to me, the way I understand that, since he doesn't tell us what we're filled by, is that we have in Christ everything that we need. We're not lacking anything. We're not missing anything, spiritually speaking. He says over in, um, in uh, Ephesians chapter 1, he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We have been filled and we lack nothing. We lack nothing because because of what Christ has done. So we have been filled. Letter B, we've also had our sin nature conquered. We've had our sin nature conquered. He says in verse 11, in him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now he's using the language of circumcision. It's an Old Testament conception. Obviously we still have circumcision nowadays, but there was a different significance then. It was a significance that a piece of flesh would be removed from the body to indicate that you were in the covenant community, that you were a part of the covenant community. And so he's not talking about a piece of flesh being removed here. He's He's speaking figuratively. He's speaking spiritually about something that's gone on inside of our heart. He's talking about the removal, not of a piece of flesh, but a stripping away of the old sinful nature. It's been conquered. That old nature, the old man, the flesh has been conquered. It no longer has any authority over you. It still rears its head every now and again. It's not, it's not dead entirely, but it has no more authority. We don't have to submit to it if we don't want to. It's not our master anymore. Now, I asked a, I asked a military man this morning, because I was never in the military, <clears throat> I said, what if a drill instructor came up to you? Now, one of the drill instructors you had when, when you were in basic training came up to you today, now that he's out of the military, and said, drop and give me 20. He said, what would you tell him? All right, I asked him, what, what would you tell him? He said, hi, it's nice to see you again. But he wouldn't be doing push-ups. Why is that? Because the, the man has no authority over him. He has no authority over him anymore. Now, it's possible that you could say, oh, yes, sir, and drop down and do, do push-ups, right? You could do that. You, you could obey it. But you have, no, you have no reason to do that. He has no authority over you. And so if, if you're obeying someone who doesn't have authority over you, uh, that's a little bit like when we obey our sinful nature. It has no authority. Now, we still listen to it sometimes. But it, we shouldn't. And we don't have to. It's not our master anymore like it was because the sin nature has been conquered, okay? We've we've been spiritually circumcised. Ezekiel says it this way. This is what God says in the book of Ezekiel. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. The idea there is, I'm going to take away your old, dead, unresponsive, cold, rock hard nature. And I'm going to give you a responsive, living, beating, live heart. All right. And that's so that's what he's done. So our sin nature has been conquered. We've also been buried and raised. Buried and raised. Verses 12 and 13 say, You have been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. For all of us who've been included in Jesus' death, who have trusted him, for believers, we've been included in his death to sin, in his death to death, in his death to the law, And he says in verse 20 of chapter 2, in his death to the elemental spirits of the world. So we've died to those things, and that's a good thing. Talk about authority being removed. We've died to it, completely dead to it. We've been included in Christ's death. More than that, we've also been raised with him. We've been made alive forever with him. We've been buried with him, and we've been raised again to, to newness of life. We who were dead in our trespasses and sins, God made us alive together with Christ. So we've been made alive. We've died to those old things. We've died to those old requirements. We've died to those old punishments that we fully deserve. And we've been made alive in Christ. Okay, So we've been buried and we've been raised. We've also been forgiven. Chapter 2, verses 13 and 14 He has forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Amen. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Our debt of sin, which barred us from heaven in God's presence, has been wiped out. He's taken this record of debt that we had along with the punishment that came as a result of it. He's taken that and he's canceled it. He's nailed it to the cross. So we don't bear it anymore. We have forgiveness. We can stand before God clean, forgiven. He's, he's passed over that. He's, he's forgiven us because of what, what Christ did. So we have forgiveness. We don't, we don't carry that anymore. We don't carry that old burden. We've been forgiven We've also had our enemies defeated, point E. We've had our enemies defeated. Chapter 2, verse 15 says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The enemy that stood against us from the very beginning. Think back to Genesis chapter 3. The serpent comes out and starts chatting with Eve, our enemy. He shows up then and he shows up all through Scripture. And he's powerful and he roams about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. That's our enemy. He's scary. He has the ability even to kill the body. But Christ on the cross defeated him, put him to open shame. And so our greatest enemy, our greatest fear, he's been put to shame. Him and all his minions. Now, the, the war has been won. Christ has won the war. He defeated him ultimately and finally, but we don't see it yet on the cross. His defeat is sure. His destruction is sure. That's what's going to happen to him. Okay? He's doomed. He's doomed. The war is already won. Christ has already won it. Now, he and his minions still fight skirmishes, right? And they can still do damage. But the war has been won. The enemy, our greatest enemy, has been defeated. We've been made alive. We've been made complete. We have everything we need. Our mortal enemies have been defeated in Christ. And more than that, we've been given a new self, point three. New self. So here we start to move into chapter three. Now, the reason I've divided it up the way I have is because even in chapter three, where he starts to get into the imperatives of telling you what to do, he's still weaving in what the indicatives are. He's still saying, because this thing is true of you, Therefore, this action, he says this action, since this thing is true of you. So he's weaving the two together. And I'm going to focus on point three here, the new self, he says, as a review of last week, first of all, we've been raised with Christ. We have new spiritual life and a new heavenly identity in Christ. We're not identified with this earth anymore. We're identified with him. Our seat is up there with him. We've been raised with him. Jesus is already seated with the Father. And in a very real sense, we have a seat there too. Our spot is saved at the table. This world is no longer our natural habitat. Death is no longer our expectation. And sin is no longer our norm. We've been lifted with Christ out of these things. We've been raised with Christ. And we will also be glorified with Christ. Let her be. He says in verses 3 and 4, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Paul says elsewhere in Galatians 2, I've been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself to me, gave himself for me. Or as John says in First John 3, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. We don't know exactly when it will be or exactly what it will look like. But we know that we are so bound up in Christ that when he appears and he'll be glorified, we will appear with him and be glorified. That's our future. That's a different future than we used to expect. That's a different future than we can expect outside of Christ. We will be glorified in him. See, we've also had our old man put off. Our old man put off. He says in chapter 3 and verse 9, you have put off the old self, literally the old man with its practices. Now, this is very similar to when we mentioned earlier about the sin nature being conquered. He uses the same verb, In both verses. But the imagery here is a little bit different. The imagery is about clothing. It's about clothing. In the ancient church, they had this practice that they would do when they would have a a baptism service. The person would show up to be baptized, dressed in a certain way, in a normal street clothes kind of way. They would show up for baptism that way. And then after they were baptized, they would put on white robes. To indicate, I'm alive in Christ. I'm associated and identified with him. I'm with him. I'm not the way I used to be. I've changed my clothes. I've put off those old clothes. Now, of course, the next day they'd put on the, you know, their regular clothes. But it was, a, it was a symbol. It was an indication to those there that I'm not the old man. I'm not the old Brennan. I've been made new in Christ. That being made new in Christ does not happen at baptism. But baptism is a picture of that of salvation, of conversion, of when we identify with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. That's what that's what baptism is. And so they were picturing this before the people. And so he says here, put off, well, he, he actually tells them, you have put off the old man. He's bringing to mind this idea of baptism. That You remember what it was like when you got baptized? You showed up in your old regular work clothes. You got baptized and you put on that white robe. You're identified with Christ. I'm not the old man anymore. I have put off those clothes. I have put those clothes off. But there's another truth here. Ever since the Garden of Eden and the fall of man into sin, we have all been identified as sinners. The root truth about us is that we are sinners. We're identified with Adam. Now, Adam was made, Adam and Eve were made, in God's image. Okay? But they fell. And so it's a marred image. And so the image that we bear as sinners is a marred image. And that's the root truth about us. That things are not quite as they should be. We're sinners. We're identified with Adam. And he says, you have put off that old man, Adam. You're not identified with him anymore. Instead, we have put on the new man. Letter D. The new man has been put on. You've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Christians aren't identified with Adam anymore. They're identified... With Jesus, the second man, the new man, the perfect man, we've been identified with him. So the core truth about us is no longer sinner. The core truth about us is redeemed. We're redeemed. We've been restored to relationship with God because of what Christ has done. That's the core truth about us. It's not that we're in Adam's image, a marred image. Now, we look at ourselves and we know that's still true. We have a marred image. We bear God's image, but... It's not perfected. It's marred by sin. But that is not the root truth. The root truth about us now is that we've been redeemed. We've been restored into relationship with Him in Christ. Now, there's an interesting, uh, what it says here about practices. The practices of the old man. You've put off the old man and his practices. Um, The old man has his sinful habits... And his ways in him, the ways that he behaves that are deeply rooted in the sin nature and have been cultivated by years and years of the indulgence of the flesh. We have a couple of lists of those kinds of practices in our passage here in in chapter 3. And we have other lists in other places. But the lists here, the two of them in chapter 3 are sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, anger, wrath, malice, slander, filthy talk. Those are the things, the practices of the old man. That's the behavior of sinners. It comes from our nature, and it's been cultivated by years and years of indulging that sin nature. Romans gives us a longer list. Galatians gives us a a slightly different list and a little bit longer. But these are the types of behaviors that are consistent with life as a sinner, as someone who is in Adam. And Christians are no longer in Adam. Christians have put off that old man like an old pair of dirty clothes and put on the new man, Christ. The core truth about us is that we are redeemed in Christ, not that we are fallen in Adam. Verse 10 tells us that we, as those who have become children of God, who have put off the old dead man, Adam, and have put on Christ, are being renewed every day to be more and more like Christ. This is similar to 2 Corinthians 4 that says our inner man, is being renewed day by day. Have you ever wondered why we don't start acting like Christ the day after we became a Christian? I I became a believer. I remember the date. Why the day after did, did I not walk in holiness? Why did I not walk like Christ? Well, of course, it's because we still live in these fallen bodies. These fallen bodies have habits. They have cravings. They have their own desires. And... We need to be renewed and we are being renewed in our inner man day by day. Becoming more and more like him. He's working that out in us. It's something that he is doing in us. From the time we become a Christian, there's a war going on inside of us. Between our new man and our old sin nature. That sin doesn't have any authority over us anymore, like I said. But we sometimes submit to its demands anyway. But as we live in Christ, we are being renewed within. Letter E, Christ is all. Verse 11, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. We Christians are no longer distinguished by our ethnicity. We're not distinguished by our cultural or religious background we're not distinguished by our social social distinctions that we normally think of we're not distinguished by those things we are in Christ and that is all we are in Christ and that is all, he is all that matters Christ is in you Christian and in me Christian he is all and he is in all These old distinctions that we carry are all put aside. They're irrelevant. They don't matter anymore. Christ is all. By his spirit, Christ dwells in every Christian, regardless of what side of the tracks the person calls home, regardless of skin color or hair length or education or personal hygiene or economic class or family connection or name. Christ is all that matters. So we have been made alive in Christ and in a very real sense we've been given a new self in Christ. Now with that foundation laid we can look at the implications for life in the right context. So given all of those truths that I've spent the last few minutes talking about bearing those things in mind of what has been done for us. What is true of us. These things we've already talked about. Now let's move in and look at our paragraph today 5 through 11. And again I said he weaves together the commands and the truths, okay? And so I've looked at several of the truths already, and now we're going to focus a little more on the commands. But let me read our passage for the day. Chapter 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, So that's our passage for the day. Now, we have a couple of implications, a couple of commands that were given last time. So just to review, letter A, seek the things that are above. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. We talked about that last week, but just to review. Letter B, set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. C, From our passage, put to death what is earthly. Put to death what is earthly. He says in verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, there are two lists given in our paragraph for today. The first one here is a pretty individual kind of thing. It's a personal kind of thing. It has to do with you, Christian. Okay, Not, not you as a group. We'll get to that. But it has to do with you personally. And it has to do with personal sins. As you read through the list there, the first two or three are more or less related to our sexuality. Not always explicitly, but the first two or three do. Sexual immorality obviously has to do with our sexuality. Impurity, usually it's used in that sense, sexual purity. Passion, also used very often in in a sexual sense. And then the, the, well, evil desire could be or could not be. There are all kinds of evil desires that we have, right? Not just sexually speaking, but there are all manner of them. And covetousness, which obviously has its application in the sexual realm, as uh, someone can covet their neighbor's wife, right? But it's a pretty personal list. It has to do with my inner life. It has to do with, with who I am by myself and what's going on in my heart, what I'm desiring Heart's desires, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry, those sorts of things, right? That's an, in, that's an internal kind of thing that we're talking about here. And he says, put to death what is earthly in you. So he's talking to you, individual, and he says, you used to be in Adam, and these things were true of you, and that was normal for you. That was par for the course. Now, Christian, you are in Christ, and you're identified with him. You're not identified primarily with Adam. Put to death that old stuff. Don't live like that anymore. Remember who you are. Remember who you've been made to be. Remember what's been done for you, the changes that have happened inside of you that Christ accomplished for you. Remember those things and put away this stuff. Don't walk in those things anymore. Be who you are, not who you used to be. Put to death what's earthly in you. He says also, D, put away old behavior. Put away old behavior. Very similar, but this one has a slightly different tilt, and I'll show you. But now, verse 8, you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Again, these were things that were true in Adam. This is par for the course in Adam. If you get a group of people together who are not Christians, this will be the norm for them. That's the way they think. That's the way they talk. That's the way they relate. But you, Christian, are not in Adam. You are in Christ. You are in Christ. And so, group of Christians behave differently toward one another. Look at this list. It's a corporate list. It has to do with our relationships with each other. Anger. Wrath toward one another. Malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Those are relational situations, relational vices. Whether it's a, the anger that's always right under the surface. You don't always see it, but it's always there. And if you scratch me, you just might, you just might get to see it, right? But it's, it's, the, it's the anger that kind of, this is the way I deal with life and I'm, I'm frustrated and I'm bitter and I carry this anger all the time. Or whether it's wrath, whether it's explosive anger, throwing stuff, hitting something, or yelling at somebody because they did me wrong. So I yell at them. That's outbursts. That's what he's talking about there. Slander. It's actually the word blasphemy, which means to speak something uh, untrue about God. To tell a lie about God, essentially. That's blasphemy. Blasphemy. Okay? To use your words to drag God down, that's blasphemy. But it doesn't just relate to us and God, it also relates to us and one another. Do we speak that way of other people, whether they're in our group or not? Do we talk about people like that? Do we drag them down with our words, speak things that are untrue or that are mostly true? They're mostly true, right? Do we do that with each other? Obscene talk from your mouth. There are some other translations that word that differently, but basically it's the idea of harsh, abusive, improper, inappropriate speech. Do we talk that way? When, when you get together with your buddies and, and there's no one else around, do you talk that way? Or when the conversation goes to a certain topic, does, does your conversation go that way? Is that the way you speak? He says, put those old things away. In a sense here, he's speaking to the group. And he says, Parkside, put those things away. Corporately, don't treat each other like that. Don't talk about each other like that. Don't blow up at each other. Don't be angry at each other. And then finally, point E, don't lie to each other. It kind of tacks on to to D. It's very similar, obviously. It's kind of related to how we speak to one another. But he, he pulls it apart. He makes a list. And then he stops and he starts a new sentence with this one. Don't lie to each other. Don't lie to each other. Be honest. Be real with each other. Now, usually we don't tell giant whoppers, right? Usually we don't you know, start some big rumor out of the blue that has nothing to do with reality, right? We don't say things about other people that we know are blatantly 100% false, right? We don't, uh, you know, tell big giant whoppers about things we've done usually. Hopefully we outgrew that. Hopefully we've passed, passed away from that. Hopefully we've moved on from that. But very often, we don't really tell the truth about what we're thinking or about the way we feel about someone or about a situation that happened. We'll we'll tell you the part that'll make you think good things about me, right? I'm willing to do that. And maybe even edge over into, you know, just to let you know that I'm human too, but I'm really saving this part. It's not for you. I'm not going to talk to you about that, right? I'm lying to you. I'm misrepresenting the truth to you, right? So he pulls this one aside from the rest of the list of the way we talk about and to each other. And he says, don't lie to each other. Tell the truth. Be honest. So the reason I wanted to pull those imperatives, those commands, back into the context of the overall thing is so that we would understand. We're not here today to write a list. Okay, put to death what is earthly. All right, I can do that. All right, put away those old things, right? Stop lying. Okay, all right, I'm good to go. Three points for, for today. That's what God's telling me today, right? Well, yes, He's telling you those three things. Don't miss them. They're true, and you need to do them. But they're in the context of this whole painting of what has gone on, what Christ has done for you, what He has done in you, how He has saved you from death and brought you to life. So I want you to remember that context. Remember what he's done. And Paul puts it in that order. This isn't just me uh reworking the text. I just started again from the beginning so that we would have the context of it. He said all these true things about what had happened in them. What's happened in you, Christian? He said all those things. And then he says, oh, here are the implications. Here are these five implications that we pulled out. I want you to do these things in order to be consistent with what's with what has happened, with what has been made true of you because of what Christ has done. Christian life is not about me behaving to please God. I can't do that. First of all, I've got this sin nature that I still listen to occasionally. I don't do that, okay? And also, there is no list that if you did this list, you would be acceptable to God. The problem is, what we start with inside. Okay? The only way we can be restored to him, the only only way we can be made acceptable in his eyes is Christ's own work on our behalf. That's the only way. So if you're sitting here today and, and you're not a believer, you're not sure if you're a believer, this is all freely offered to you. This is not a ladder that Christians climb. This is not something we've accomplished and something we've done. This is us receiving what Christ has done. And he offers the same thing to you. He offers new life, he offers a new position, he offers you a new destiny. It's a huge offer, he offers you forgiveness. the imperatives, the commands of Scripture are never alone. They're never alone. It takes God working on our behalf. He's the one who brings us to Himself, not us climbing there. So, I know it's been relatively heavy and I know there's been a lot of writing and a lot of context, but I I want us to bear in mind these truths about what has been accomplished for us So that when we think about, okay, I need to stop lying. Why? Because the Bible said so? Well, that's an excellent reason. But because of these reasons that have been given that Paul gave, these things that are true of me in Christ. And that offer is made that they can be true of you too for someone who has never trusted Christ as their Savior. That offer is there. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and um, we thank you for what you have done for us. We Love you, we uh, trust you, and we are more than grateful for what you have accomplished on our behalf. Thank you for our letter here, Colossians, that tells us so many of these truths, the things that have been done for us, the things that Christ has accomplished for us. Lord, I praise you that you didn't let down some ladder that we could work our way up it and maybe... maybe. Uh, Someday make it to you. But you accomplished it in Christ. I thank you for that. Thank you for Father's Day where we get to uh, rejoice um, in our earthly fathers who uh, whom we love and are wonderful and we want to celebrate. Lord, we remember also you, our Heavenly Father. And uh, we thank you for the way you love us and are gracious and show mercy to us. We thank you and we love you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.